um, a pleasure to be here today. Um, what I wanted to do today is, is actually do a lot of things. So the first part of this talk is really just to kind of point out to you what the problems are the drug industry is having and what we're trying to do to deal with what they're trying to do to deal with it. And then secondly, to give you two examples of, of failure, uh, a glucagon receptor antagonist and a glucokinase activator, and show you how, uh, uh, basically how risky drug development is. And then if I have time, I'll show you a success and how that fits into the paradigm of uh, early proof of concept and translational medicine and how we're trying to get answers very quickly. So very briefly, what this shows is that the success rates uh, for uh, drug approvals are decreasing, and actually the success rates in every phase of development, phase one, two, and three, including pre-registration, are decreasing dramatically. In fact, that pre-registration um, uh, number up there is actually quite old. Now the pre-registration, about almost 50% of drugs fail at the FDA now which is a huge, huge difference from the way it used to be. It used to be if you actually submitted a drug, you almost always got it approved. And on the right, you can see the success rates from phase one to approval. The success rate now for, for a drug that enters phase one is, is less than 10%, the, the odds of it being approved. And you can see that the situation is getting significantly worse. If you look at drugs in phase three, it's fairly constant. But the phase one and phase two, a number of compounds in phase one and phase two is continually rising. And of course, what this does is it adds a huge cost of failure for every drug that gets approved. This shows R&D expenditures in the pharmaceutical industry. Now again, some of these slides are pretty old. They're only, the data is only up to 2007, but it really is just continuing on the same path. And what you can see is pretty much a, an exponential growth in R&D expenditures, but new drug approvals have remained relatively constant. They've risen a little bit. And this past year, there were 30 new drugs approved, which is right where we were in 2007. So there has not, there's not been an increase in new drug approvals. This slide illustrates the cost of every new molecular entity that gets approved. Now, this is total cost, including the cost of failure. So it's basically uh, uh, includes, for example, the two drugs, potential drugs I'll show you today. And what it shows is that over, these are five-year moving averages. And over the years, uh, the average R&D spend per FDA approval has gone from about 49 million to about 1.6 billion dollars. And this estimate, there are various estimates around this 1.6, I'll show you some that are 1.8, but the bottom line is, is that the cost of getting a new drug approved has risen uh, substantially. And this just shows it by, um, by what, what phase the spending is in. And you can see that in the discovery phase at the bottom, whoops, what did I do here? At the discovery phase at the bottom, is this figure there it is, uh, about 46 million average in preclinical discovery, which in the pharmaceutical industry is kind of heavy change. Mm -hmm. um, early development, uh, meaning phase one to fit through phase two, is about 485 million on average. And so two of the drugs I'll show you today cost about 485 million each to fail. 
and uh, uh, an approval uh, from you know phase three and approval and all that's about one and a half. So the total comes to about 1.8 billion in R&D. Now, why do drugs fail? Well, uh, they fail for a few reasons. One is efficacy, and you can see this is this is again is old data, but it's pretty similar to the data today. Um, you can see that from 1991 to 2000, the, uh, the failure for efficacy really didn't change much. And this is a real challenge because it means that what you really need are good animal models to tell you whether drugs are going to work in man. And if you don't have good predictive animal models, your chances of failure is very, very high. So that's one thing. Uh, PK used to be an issue, but really isn't much of an issue now. You can see toxicity has become more of an issue lately, so more drugs are failing because of tox issues. And as the FDA becomes more and more focused on safety, uh, the, the, uh, the two bars on the left are going to diverge more and more, where clinical safety is going to become, and it has become, a much greater reason uh, for failure. But what's uh, really dramatic about this is, is the commercial. And you can see that, that uh, the reason for uh, uh, commercial being a reason for failure has risen substantially and continues to rise. And what this is, is really the marketing people. Basically, uh, uh, pharmaceutical industries used to be run by R&D people. And the CEOs of all the major pharmaceutical companies used to be R&D people. Now they're almost all businessmen. And what happens is, basically, to get a drug through development, you need to basically prove that it's going to be a commercial success. So, so building early in development questions that address commercial success are absolutely critical. And one thing that's happening now, which is interesting, I'll talk about this a little, very briefly later, that um, marketing people now are paying much less attention to physicians and much more attention to the people who pay the bills, the insurance companies. And in fact, what's happening now is the marketing people are going to insurance companies and saying, if we had a drug that did this, would you pay for it? How much would you pay for it? What tier would it be in? And so forth. And then they come back to the R&D people and say, sorry, you know, the, the payers are telling us they won't pay for it, so forget it. So this is becoming a very important uh, uh, criteria. Now, this is another big problem, and you all know this, with patent expirations, and I won't spend any time on this, but between 2009 and 2012, almost $100 billion of drug company income was lost, uh, or will be lost. And this is an underestimate, because these numbers are old. So uh, it's well over $100 billion. This is a huge problem uh, for pharmaceuticals, because this money at least a fairly high percentage of it, is what goes back into R&D. So, for example, Merck, now that it's combined with Sharon Plow, spends about $8 billion a year on R&D. So losing a patent on a drug is, is, is a big deal. <clears throat> and this just shows some of the other problems facing drug companies. So Europe, you know, if you get a drug approved in Europe, it doesn't mean you can sell it. What it means, you get it approved, but then you have to negotiate with the individual countries on the price. And so, um, if you don't get a good price, you might not sell it. So, and in Europe, of course, the prices for drugs are much, much less than they are in the U.S. And in fact, the U.S. is subsidizing the worldwide pharmaceutical industry. Um, 
And then, you know, healthcare reforms in the U.S. and, and patent expirations and so forth. So how's Big Pharma dealing with these? Well, one is they're restructuring. They're firing people. They're trying to save money on R&D. They're consolidating. Uh, there are some are refocusing and getting rid of businesses like animal health and over-the-counter and stuff like that. Others are doing the opposite. They're, uh, they're expanding into other businesses. So J&J &J and Abbott are examples of the latter, whereas companies like Merck and Pfizer are more examples of the former. And then there's a lot of outsourcing. So fully integrated pharmaceutical companies are becoming uh, fully uh, integrated networks, meaning that a lot of clinical development, even research, a whole lot of things are now being outsourced. Uh, risk reduction strategies. So, uh, licensing is becoming a really big thing, but of course there's only so many biotech companies and so many things to license, and there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies that are going after these, but this is a great time for biotech, if there were money, uh, because pharma is really beginning to look outside more and more <coughs> for new targets and new compounds. And then joint ventures and research consortiums, for example, uh, BMS and AstraZeneca joined up in diabetes. You're seeing more and more of this because the risk is so great that if you share risk, uh, obviously you share reward too, but I think what pharmaceutical companies are most interested in is sharing the risk. And uh, I mentioned diversification as opposed to uh, focusing uh, as in, uh, by different companies. And then there's the increased focus on payers, I mentioned that. And of course, every, you read in the newspaper every day how pharmaceutical companies are looking to India and China for, uh, uh, to solve all their problems. Now this is a little blurred, but what it shows is what's happening in consolidation. If you look on the far right, you see what is Pfizer and, and, and the five, and the, I'm sorry, two, four, six companies, but I don't put Wyeth is not on that list, so there's seven companies that were ultimately acquired that led to the current day Pfizer. And you can see the same thing for GlaxoSmithKline, Novartis, Bristol-Myers, Squid, Sanofi, Ventus, and so forth. And uh, in 2008, there were 14 large pharmaceutical companies. In 2009, three of them were absorbed, uh, sharing plot by Merck, Wyeth by Pfizer, and Genentech by Roche. And, uh, you know, who knows what that number will be later. But, of course, this leads to less competition uh, within the pharmaceutical industry, which is a potential problem. Now, you'd think that all this merger and acquisition stuff would have led to some gain in, in, in approvals, in drug approvals, but it hasn't at all. In fact, the number of new drug approvals before and after mergers and acquisitions by companies has remained the same. So what companies are really doing by merging is, is expanding their product line and cutting costs. They're really not getting more drugs, and that's why they're looking more to biotech. Unfortunately, the number of biotech companies is shrinking. It's not growing. So this represents another problem, the amount of money available to start up biotechs, of venture capital is in fact shrinking, and so this represents another dilemma for Big Pharma. And Big Pharma now is also reaching out much more academia, uh, especially for targets. And this is, represents, I think, a great opportunity for institutions like Columbia. So uh, basically, just a few slides on what Pharma is doing to improve its probability of success. In other words, how do you get more drugs through the pipeline? 
Um, well, first of all, I mentioned less than 10% from first demand make it to market. Another interesting statistic is that if, uh, only 30% of drugs that are actually marketed even recover their original investment. So when you see companies, you know, drugs that they're selling five, six, seven billion dollars a year, those are the drug, those are the drugs that support the pharmaceutical companies. The ones that are selling much less than that basically hardly ever even recover their costs. So what, what do you need to get a better probability of success? Well, I mentioned better validation of targets. This is really, really important, meaning a primarily better animal model. So is, is a drug that interacts with this target going to affect the disease in man? And if you can answer that question before getting into man, that's where all the expense is. So failing faster in man is another issue because if you, if, if you continue to study compounds, as I'll show you we did, uh, you're going to burn a huge amount of money. So you want to get rapid proof of biology, meaning does a compound interact with its target? I actually have a whole talk based on that, which I won't bore you with today. Uh, secondly is proof of concept in man. So does a diabetes drug lower glucose in man? And third, proof of clinical concept, meaning uh, is it, uh, does it meet the clinical profile you want? Is it at least as effective or more effective than metformin? Can it be combined with metformin and so forth and so on? So what, what a pharma is really looking for are validated biomarkers, things you can use in early clinical development that will tell you whether a drug's doing what it's doing. And actually, citagliptin is one of the, uh, uh, or Genuvia is probably one of the best examples of how you can use biomarkers. And if we have time, I'll show you a little bit of that. Uh, translational medicine, and you know, I, uh, I won't show you this today, but we, we used a lot of uh, of uh, stable isotope studies to see whether drugs were hitting their target and so forth, and new clinical paradigms that, uh, to, to uh, evaluate that. Um, then comparators are being used a lot in early clinical trials to see whether a drug meets its uh, clinical criteria. And then using more phase 1B rather than phase 2A sites, me meaning using fewer patients uh, in, in phase one sites rather than doing large phase two studies, which saves a huge amount of money. And, and the examples I'll show you all did this. Um, peptides have a much greater probability of success than do small molecules uh, for many reasons. Uh, um, and then the other thing is balancing your portfolio. In other words, doing looking at new targets, meaning innovation, versus trying to improve on existing drugs or drugs that are already in development which have real problems. And so both of these are what PHARM is really doing. And then I just want to mention briefly expanding pre-competitive space because one of the things that PHARM has done in the past is it has basically not published its early clinical data. The idea has been, and the glucokinase activator data I'm going to show you today is a good example of that, where Roche had compounds that had failed years and years ago, but they never told anybody why. So every other company then goes through the same thing. And what happens is there's a huge amount of resources wasted because you reproduce other people's failures. It's also not fair to patients to be exposed to mechanisms that aren't going to work. And there's a whole lot of things. So I have been a big advocate of early uh, publication. And, and in fact, the two examples I'm going to show you were all published uh, almost in real time after the data 
uh, was acquired, and and this is what I what I at least was trying and still trying to get other pharmaceutical companies to do. So with that, let me give you two examples of failure and very expensive failures. The first one is one that we should have predicted. The second one is one that we were totally blindsided by. So you all know about glucagon. Uh, glucagon increases hepatic glucose output uh, and elevates glucose. You know that glucagon is increased in type 2 diabetes and it's also not regulated uh, appropriately. So I'm not going to spend any, any time on that. So Merck uh, has had several uh, glucagon antagonists. One was MK893, which is competitive, reversible, high, and highly selective. I should also say that all of these glucagon activities are only active against the human receptor. So we needed to, uh, uh, to use humanized animals for all the animal studies. So all, in, in, I believe virtually all, everybody's glucagon antagonists are pretty much the same. Now, importantly, this compound has a very long half-life, so the data I'm going to show you is uh, most of the single-dose, or all the single-dose data is with a big loading dose, right, because it has, it has an extremely long half-life. So this is the uh, animal data, at least a very little bit of the animal data, just to show you what this compound did. So on the left um, are um, humanized mice, and the top curve is, I can't really see this pointer very well from here. Um, but anyway, the top curve is vehicle, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's glucagon alone, uh, raising glucose in these animals. This is a glucagon challenge. The bottom curve is vehicle. These are just animals that weren't treated at all. And the three intermediate curves show that the uh, glucose levels are lowered by MK893 at 3, 10, and 30 MPK. If you go to the right curve, you can see that this is data from more chronic treatment, 1, 3, or subacute treatment at 1, 3, and 10 days. The left is the, uh, the glucoses in the uh, controlled DIO mice. These are humanized DIO mice. Um, the uh, next group of, of curves is the 1, 3, and 10-day glucose in lean humanized mice. And the uh, next group is 3, uh, 3 milligrams per kilogram uh, mice treated at 3 MPK, showing at, at uh, 3 days, uh, glucose, uh, the decrease in glucose was about 70% of the excess and about 80% at 10 days. And at the top dose, at day 10, basically the glucose was the same as lean animals. So glucagon antagonism is an incredibly effective way to lower glucose. So with this data, we wanted to see what kind of doses we would use in man. So we did a glucagon challenge test. We infused people with altreotide insulin and, and then glucagon. Um, and you can see that the top curve is placebo. You get a, a very large rise in glucose when you infuse glucagon, as long as you're blocking the rise in insulin with somatostatin, which, which we did. Um, you can see there isn't that much effect in 10 and 40 uh, milligrams, but 200 milligrams gives about a 50% reduction in glucose area under the curve. And a gram gives about 90% reduction in glucose area under the curve. Now this is a single dose, so you can almost you can basically completely block with, with a gram and get about 50% blockade of glucagon action in man with uh, a single dose of 200 milligrams. 
So we then took all this data and looked at the percent blockade, which is, uh, which is the y-axis, versus the plasma concentration. And we did some modeling based on, based on this curve. And you can see that 50% of blockade is at about 5 micromolar, or plasma concentration of about 5 micromolar. Um, and using this data, um, uh, we figured that a 40 milligram daily dose, uh, which is a 200 milligram loading dose, or 40 milligrams per day, would give about 50% blockade. And greater than 80% blockade occurs with a loading dose of a gram, or 120 milligrams per day at steady state. So with that, uh, we did a proof of concept study, uh, which looked at weighted mean glucose over 28 days, uh, in people treated with 40 milligrams and 120 milligrams of 893 placebo or metformin. And we put in uh, gra uh, two grams of metformin a day, a gram twice a day. And I mentioned to you that putting comparators has become extremely important because you want to know uh, what your compound does relative to the benchmark, which is still metformin. And these are the uh, glucose curves. Uh, you'll see the, the placebo curve is the, is the top curve. Uh, metformin uh, lowered glucose quite substantially over, over 24 hours. And you can see that 893 at 40 milligrams uh, lowered glucose about the same as metformin. Whereas the 120 milligram curve, uh, you can see that glucose is lowered substantially more than metformin. So glucagon receptor blockade at 100% is, is more effective than metformin, and 50% it's about as effective. Now, this is where we first started seeing problems. And um, in this 28-day study, you could see that at the top dose, um, ALT was increased, diastolic blood pressure was increased, bilirubin was increased, and systolic blood pressure was increased. Now, today, we might have just abandoned the compound. But then we thought, well, you know, that's it's a huge dose. We've not 100, virtually 100% blockade. At 50% blockade, you're not seeing much. At 50% blockade, is still a pretty effective dose. So let's go ahead and we'll do another study. This just shows another problem here, that is the triglycerides were increased about, about 21%, LDL cholesterol was increased 14%. If you look at placebo, you can see they're decreased. Uh, metformin in this particular study also increased triglycerides, which it does sometimes, and, uh, but LDL was decreased slightly and HDL was increased. But, you know, we were kind of blinded and figured, you know, well, we could go on anyway. But if you think about it, if you block glucagon, lipids should go up, right? I mean, it's pretty classic physiology, all right? But we went ahead. So we did uh, a phase 2B study where we had about 60 patients per group. You notice the top dose we lowered from 120 to 80 since we knew 120 was a problem. We figured maybe we can squeak 80 in. So we went ahead with uh, 20, 40, 60, and 80, uh, two grams of metformin and a placebo for uh, 12 weeks. And again, you see there's really, really nice effect on glucose. If you look at the table, you could see that the uh, fasting plasma glucose was lowered 63 milligrams per deciliter by 80 milligrams at 893, and 37 milligrams per deciliter 
by metformin. So this compound is quite a bit more effective than metformin. At the uh, 40 milligram dose, which is the 50% blockade dose, the fasting glucose was lowered 48 uh, versus 37. The placebo lowered at 1.8. And the curves you can see down below, which, uh, which show very nice, uh, a rather, rather rapid and sustained lowering of glucose over 12 weeks. If you look at hemoglobin A1C, the data pretty much mirrors the fasting glucose. The 80 milligrams lowered in about uh, 1.5% versus 0.8% uh, for metformin, and the 40 milligram dose was 1%. The placebo actually went up 0.5%, so the, the actual reduction by 80 milligrams was about 2%, which is, uh, which is quite, uh, quite a bit better than any drug on the market. Um, and this is the two-hour postprandial glucose, again, uh, uh, 40 milligrams pretty similar to uh, metformin, a little bit better, uh, and uh, of course the um, 80 milligrams being quite a bit better. Uh, glucagon, as you might expect, goes up. We knew this from the transgenic animals. If you knock out, uh, for, if you knock out uh, uh, glucagon receptor, glucagon levels rise quite dramatically. Um, GLP-1 goes up as well, but active GLP-1, which is the right bottom curve, does not change. And so we wouldn't expect any of this efficacy from GLP-1. And insulin levels uh, stay the same, actually. Maybe go down a little bit, but basically stay the same. But as we could have predicted, uh, you see in the upper left-hand panel, total cholesterol goes up in a dose-dependent fashion. LDL goes up, APOB goes up. Um, and um, if you look at body weight, the lower left, that goes up. On the right, you can see uh, some of the HDL and triglyceride parameters. The triglycerides went up, uh, not a huge amount more than metformin, but they did go up. And um, what's that? Oh, the ALT. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, uh, the bottom right is ALT. You notice placebo is the black, and then metformin actually goes down a little bit, and then all the doses raised a ALT. So the bottom line is that um, we saw a pretty dramatic improvement in glycemic control. We saw uh, dose-dependent increases in glucagon and total GLP-1, but not fasting. But there were associated increases in lipids, ALT, body weight, ambulatory blood pressure relative to placebo. So this is, this is a good example of failing late, where you should have, we should have failed earlier. But I think what it does, in a way, is kind of rewrite the textbooks on glucagon, because there were, there were theories based on somatostatin infusions to how much blocking glucagon would lower glucose, but no one has really shown it with a selective glucagon antagonist. So how important glucagon is in regulation of blood sugar and type 2 diabetes with a compound like this can be studied quite extensively. Now, we, the other question we asked with this compound, since we thought it was going to be a drug, we said, well, what about hypoglycemia? So is this going to block the recovery from hypoglycemia? Now, this is some very old data from uh, Phil Cryer. And you can see in, in the center right that if you uh, block glucagon by using somatostatin, you, uh, you, you, which is the dotted line, you uh, slow or delay the recovery from hypoglycemia induced by insulin. 
and growth hormone, which is on the right upper, does virtually nothing, and glucagon plus growth hormone on the upper left looks just like glucagon. If you get down to the bottom, uh, middle, you'll notice that uh, if you reduce glucagon deficiency with somatostatin plus alpha-beta blockade, you're really not the heck out of, out of recovery. So patients on um, uh, uh, beta and alpha blockers uh, basically have almost no recovery from hypoglycemia. And the, the, the right-hand panel is people uh, who had uh, no epinephrine. They basically were, I think they were adrenalectomized. And um, so they had no epinephrine. And again, there's no recovery from hypoglycemia. But if you look at the left-hand lower panel, you'll see that if you just block alpha-beta and leave glucagon intact, people recover normally. So the conclusion is that glucagon is the primary hormone for recovery. But if you don't have glucagon, you better well have catecholamines. That's the bottom line. And then growth hormone and also cortisol are not very important players here. <clears throat> so what we did was a hypoglycemic uh, clamp study. Uh, basically what we did was uh, bring patients' uh, glucose down with an insulin infusion of one million per kilogram per minute. And we, um, when we got to 50, we started a glucose infusion to keep the glucose at 50. Then after 30 minutes, we stopped the insulin and the glucose, and we looked at the rate at which glucose recovered, and then we looked at counter-regulatory hormones. And this is the curve, the glucose curves uh, for those for the three paradigms, which is placebo, the 50% blockade dose of 200 milligrams, and the 90% blockade dose of a gram. And what you can see is that the starting glucoses were lower in the glucagon antagonist group, as you might expect. But the decrease in glucose with insulin and the steady state at 50 were, were, was about the same in, in all the groups. So they all started out uh, when we stopped the clamp at the same place. And then what you could see is the rate of recovery in the placebo group, which is the top curve, the 200 milligrams, the next one in the uh, gram uh, is the bottom curve. You could see that the recovery is delayed by the glucagon antagonist, as you might expect. And the question is, how much was it delayed? And what we looked at was the delay of recovery, uh, or the recovery time to 65 minutes, and the recovery time to 70 minutes. We used 70 minutes because that's the FDA's definition of hypoglycemia. And we used 65 minutes because we thought that by 65 minutes, patient's symptoms were usually pretty much gone. So you can see that the placebo took about 30 minutes to recover to 65. The 200 milligram dose took about eight minutes, so nine minutes longer, which was not significant. And the uh, gram uh, uh, dose took um, uh, 51, or almost 52 minutes, uh, um, which was about 33, um, um, oh, I'm sorry, which, whoops, which is, uh, about 20 uh, minutes longer than the placebo. If you look at the right-hand panel, which is the 70, uh, you can see the recovery times, which are not too much different than 65. So going from 65 to 70 doesn't take very long. But if you look at the bottom uh, uh, table, you'll see that there, the difference was 12 minutes in recovery time uh, with the placebo and 25 minutes to 70, to RT70 with the, with the top dose. So some delay in recovery, but we didn't think that this was 
uh, uh, probably huge, especially at the uh, 200 milligram with the 50% blockade. And this just shows glucagon levels uh, going up higher in the highest dose, next in the mid-dose, and then the placebo, the growth hormone, cortisol, and catecholamine levels, which all uh, went up. So then we wanted to see what happened in type 2 diabetes, but we wanted to see uh, uh, what happened with a beta blocker, because this really tests the most extreme case. So we only tested type 2 diabetics in the presence of 893 plus a beta blocker. And so we tested a beta blocker alone and 893 plus a beta blocker. And so this was a two-period clamp. Um, it was similar to the study we did before, except each patient had two clamps, one on a beta blocker, one not on a beta blocker, and these people had type 2 diabetes. This is just the curve showing the, uh, with the beta blocker alone, which is the top curve, and with the beta blocker plus 893, which is the bottom curve. But what's most instructive is this table. And you can see that with, the, with propanolol alone, uh, the recovery is delayed, at the recovery to 65 minutes is uh, 71 minutes. Now, in, uh, and with, with, oh, great, thanks. This is, this is this will work better. Magic. Can you see it? I can't see it. That's the problem. Let me see the um, No. Okay, that's all right. At any rate, are you, you all following me okay? Yeah. All right. So um, you can see that uh, the, the, the time to reach a glucose of 63 took 103 minutes. I mean, this is enormous. If you look at the note I put at the bottom, in normal volunteers, the RT65 was 30 minutes. So in type 2 diabetics on propanolol, it's gone from 30 minutes to 103 minutes. I don't think I certainly didn't appreciate this. So uh, this is quite, quite dramatic. And then if you, um, I'm sorry, to 71 minutes, from 30 to 71 minutes. And then if you add a glucagon antagonist, it goes to 103. And the difference is 32 minutes, which isn't that much different than with a glucagon antagonist alone. But I think the point is here that, uh, that the two together lead to profound decreases. And you might want to be careful about all your patients on, on beta blockers. Now, we use propanolol here because we wanted to test a non-selective. Whether it's selective would be different, I don't know. But I doubt it would be too much different, to be honest. This shows the glucagon responses, which are quite a bit higher with the glucagon antagonist. And if you look at the epinephrine responses, which is on the upper left, you remember, you probably don't remember, but in the, in the normal people, epinephrine levels went up to about 500 picograms per ml. So with propanolol now, they're up to 1,000. And if you also include glucagon antagonists, they go up to almost 2,000. So we're getting huge increases in epinephrine, uh, which probably is not too good for these people either. Uh, and then, of course, there are increases in any other hormones. Ah, there we go. All right, good. Thank you. <laughs> we are out. All right. Um, so now, so, so the reason why I showed you that was for a couple of things. First of all, we went against our own principles. We went way, way too far. We invested far too much money in that drug. But I think what we did do is add a lot to the uh, what I hope will be a future ongoing discussion of the role of glucagon in type 2 diabetes. And hopefully some of these compounds can add to that. Understanding. So glucokinase. Well, 
Glucokinase, you know, is, 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 uh, is thought to be the glucose uh, sensor in, in the beta cell and is responsible, or at least augments insulin secretion. It's also responsible for glucose uptake in the liver and increasing um, gluconeogenesis and increasing glycolysis in the liver. And the net effect is to, to decrease uh, plasma glucose. And you know there are hereditary uh, abnormalities, uh, there are ge genetic abnormalities going both ways in glucokinase. So there's diabetics and, and, and there's uh, hypoglycemia. There's a spectrum of disease in, in, in both cases. So we thought that this was a target that was basically validated in man because we know uh, people with activating mutations at the allosteric site have uh, hypoglycemia. Uh, and in preclinical studies, so we knew this was a highly uh, a selective, or at least a hundredfold selectivity uh, for uh, hexakinase subtype 4, which is glucokinase compared to other hexakinases. It was active in both liver and beta cells. It was highly effective in lowering glucose in multiple preclinical species. In fact, we had trouble doing tox with this compound because it made animals so hypoglycemic. Uh, so we, we had a really hard time. It also caused cataracts, uh, probably because of the severe hypoglycemia. Uh, in clinical studies, this particular compound I'm going to show you, which is 941, had a very short half-life. And of course, marketing people don't like three times a day drugs. They say patients won't take them. You can't sell a three times a day drug. So we figured, well, what do type 2 diabetics need? That's three times a day. And what we thought was that if this drug were really effective, it could be used in the place or in substitute for short-acting insulin uh, prior to meals in, in diabetics on uh, Lantus or other long-acting insulins. So we, we studied uh, 10 to 40 milligrams three times a day pre-meal doses in phase one studies. I'm going to show you uh, uh, two studies, uh, one with three times a day, one with two times a day. And in some cases, the pre-meal dose was fixed. In other cases, patients were allowed to titrate, as you would short-acting insulin. And we felt that at least the clinicians in, among us, amongst us felt that titrating was the right way to do it. The marketing people thought it was a nightmare because people would have to have all these different sized pills and they'd get them all mixed up. And how can you do that? So you know, you know how this goes. So this, is, this was the first study we did, which is on top of metformin. Now, this is another thing we wanted to make sure since both compounds are working on the liver, that we didn't get into trouble using it with metformin. So the first study was a 14-day was a study. We looked at glucose, 24-hour uh, weighted mean glucose on day one and day 14. The two placebo curves are here. This is day one, this is day 14. And the uh, 941 uh, curve is, is right here. And they could use, this was twice a day, so th these dotted lines are breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They took the drug before breakfast and before dinner. This is a snack. And uh, they could use up to 60 milligrams twice a day. So this was basically a titration study. And you can see there's a, quite a, a substantial reduction in glucose. Um, the placebo group between days 1 and 14 went down about 15 milligrams per deciliter weighted mean glucose, but the 941 group went down about 56, so the difference was about 40 uh, milligrams per deciliter, which, as you know, translates to a hemoglobin A1C of more than 1%, which is, which is pretty good. Normally, we use about 30 milligrams per deciliter weighted mean glucose equals a 1% change in hemoglobin A1C. 
And the next thing we wanted to look at is, is what happened on basal insulin. And this, again, is another 24-hour glucose study showing the, uh, the placebo group and the uh, 941 group on top of a baseline of Lantus insulin. Again, and this was three times a day, uh, showing, again, that you could get pretty nice effects. And, and uh, rather than using uh, short-acting insulin in these patients, you can get really nice postprandial reductions in glucose with, with a GKA activator. So then we said, okay, well, let's, uh, let's look at longer term. And here's where we got completely blindsided. So uh, the first, this was a study that luckily had a phase A and phase B in it, otherwise it would have cost us even more money. Phase A, we used uh, fixed doses of 10, 20, 30, and 40 milligrams TID in a placebo, and that was for uh, 12 weeks, 14 weeks. And then we allowed all the dose groups to titrate up to 40 milligrams a day, three times. So the second part of the study is a titration study, and of course the placebo group stayed on placebo. And uh, this particular patient population I wanted to show you because they've had diabetes for about uh, 12 years. Uh, they're, we're on about 45, 42, 48 units of, of uh, insulin. 60% of them are also on metformin, and their baseline hemoglobin A1C was 9. So these are kind of typical patients on Lantus insulin with metformin who are very poorly controlled. Um, and this shows phase A of the study, and you can see uh, nice reductions in glucose, a nice dose response, although 30 and 40 seem to be about the same, but uh, 10, 20, and 30 and 40. Uh, here's the uh, change in hemoglobin A1C, and you can see some nice uh, changes in, in, in hemoglobin A1C over, over this period of uh, 14 weeks. And these are the, the actual doses that patients took. Uh, during the study, 29 to 82 milligrams, mean doses. Um, the safety results, and uh, there were uh, some increases in triglycerides from 15 to 28% versus 8% on placebo, and it was significant for the 20 and 40 milligram doses. Uh, diastolic blood pressure did not, the mean didn't increase, but if you did an outlier analysis and you looked at the patients whose glucose was up by, a, I mean, blood pressure was up by more than 10 millimeters of mercury, it was 13 to 20% versus 10% on placebo. Uh, and there was a, uh, a significant increase in systolic blood pressure with a 40 milligram dose. There were small increases in body weight, which were not surprising. And there, was, there were no, no eye problems, because you remember we had problems with cataracts in, in the animal studies. Um, hypoglycemia was an issue, as you might imagine. In the group that received placebo alone, 40% uh, of, um, uh, I'm sorry, 40 patients, 35% had hypoglycemia. But that went to 53% uh, on 941. So as you expect, hypoglycemia was an issue, but not, but there were no cases of, uh, or I guess there were a couple in this here, but, but there weren't a lot of severe hypo, hypoglycemia. Now what really surprised us was, was the, uh, the titration phase of the study. After 14 weeks, patients continued 
and you can see that every group lost efficacy. So this mechanism, this mechanism uh, is not sustainable. And these are the doses people were taking. So they got up to 85 to 100 milligrams of drug, which is pretty close to where, we, where, where they wanted, wanted them to be. And we don't have an explanation for this. If, if you look at, uh, um, some people here may know the literature better than I, but if you look at the activating mutations uh, of kids uh, with hypoglycemia, GK uh, mutations, some of them do get better, which is kind of not terribly explicable to my way of thinking, but, but there must be counter-regulatory mechanisms that lead to loss of efficacy of these allosteric changes in GKA. So I welcome anybody's thoughts on this if you have any ideas. But, but again, uh, here obviously we failed. I, I hope that we can learn something about uh, glucokinase from this, but, but the actual lesson is not totally clear. What a lot, what people are, some people are doing now is looking at, by the way, I don't know yet uh, whether this uh, loss of efficacy was due to beta cell insulin secretory lack of response or lack of liver response or both. So that's something that we need to know. Um, so this just reviews that. I, I, think, I don't think I need to spend any time on this. Uh, but basically, uh, the overall profile did not support clinical development. And hopefully, what this will lead to is a better understanding of GK. So now I want to take just couple of minutes at the end to show you what success looks like and what, uh, because you have to know that this drug is supported all that other stuff, right? So you have to have some successes. And the reason why I'm showing you this is not to show you uh, really uh, anything about Genuvia or Stemglyptin, but to show you how we incorporated biomarkers into early clinical development, which is extremely important in making rapid go-no-go decisions. So you all know that uh, GLP-1, uh, uh, the 7 to 36 is the active form. It's degraded uh, 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 DPP-4 clips, the uh, uh, two amino acids to 9 to 36, when it becomes uh, inactive. And of course, the DPP-4 inhibitor uh, increases the, um, uh, the amount of active GLP-1 and, and prolongs the half-life of GLP-1. So this was the first phase one study that we did. And what's important, important background here is that we knew from animal studies that if you inhibited 80% of DPP-4 activity in plasma, that you got maximal effect of a DPP-4 inhibitor. Now, 80% is kind of an arbitrary number because it depends on how you do the assay. In, in, in the way we did the assay, 80, you couldn't tell the difference between 80% and 100%. Some people have assays where tell 90% from 100%, but basically this is close to 100%, okay? Uh, and, and so this is the PK profile of doses from 25 to 400 milligrams, and, what you, and this is the 80% blockade uh, level. And what you can see is that 100 milligrams gives 80% blockade at 24 hours, 100 and 200 milligrams. So this told us that that should be the clinical dose. Well, Guess what? Clinical dose is 100 milligrams. So you can, these kinds of biomarkers are incredibly valuable, provided you also have animal models that are predictive. So those two things together uh, allowed us to accelerate this program dramatically. Because then what we did was a single dose study 
This happened to be a 200 milligram dose study, but, but what it showed was that uh, if you look at GLP-1 levels with an oral GTT at, at two hours after a dose, you can see that uh, this is the placebo. This is a 25 milligram and a 200 milligram dose at, at two hours. At 24 <coughs> hours, the effectiveness of the 25 milligram dose is less, but the 200 milligram dose still has maximal efficacy at 24 hours. And the same thing is true of GIP. So again, you can look at, at using other uh, parameters. You can look at the duration, uh, how long an effect you have, and so forth, very early, even in single-dose studies. And then we looked at 24-hour glucose profile, similar to what we did with, uh, later with GKA and glucagon. But again, and again, and this study was done on top of metformin, because again, you want to make sure that your compounds can be used with metformin. And uh, sure enough, uh, we saw that we got nice lower, nice 24-hour glucose profile, nice lowering of glucose mean was uh, what is that 30.8 or something like that, uh, basically about a one percent uh, equivalent to about a one percent reduction in hemoglobin A1C. Now the other thing we wanted to do was study metformin a little bit more because you know there was some suggestion in the literature that metformin might increase GLP-1. And we wanted to develop Janumet as a first-line therapy because we thought the combination might be especially effective. And this is just a glucose tolerance test uh, with 100 milligrams of, uh, well, this is, this is the uh, placebo group, uh, metformin alone in the glucose tolerance test, sitagliptin alone, and uh, this is um, um, uh, the combination, again, getting a nice, uh, at least additive uh, reduction in, uh, in glucose. And if you look at GLP-1 levels, uh, you can see that both metformin and sitagliptin <coughs> raise uh, GLP-1 uh, a little bit in the fasted state, but they actually have a synergistic effect when combined in the fasting state and about an additive effect in, in the postpartum state. So this is um, uh, metformin, this is acetagliptin, uh, and, uh, and this is the combination, uh, measuring active uh, GLP-1. So this is basically the foundation that led to us pursuing Janumet as a first, along with the glucose data, as first-line therapy. So with that, um, I'm gonna stop here and, and ask if uh, there are any questions. Thank you. I, I think it's uh, the, the, the effects on lipids are mechanism-related. I mean, if, if, if you block a hormone that's responsible for lipid oxidation in the liver, you're going to get increased lipid synthesis and, and uh, an assembly of triglycerides and VLDL 
production. I, I mean, I, I feel pretty confident that's probably what's happening. I can't prove it to you. We did do some profiling, by the way, in animals, which um, I don't think that data's been shown anywhere, but, but it showed what you would expect. You get a, an increase in, in a, you get a lipogenic profile of the liver, just, just like you would expect. So, um, I, what I'm not so clear about are blood pressure changes. I, I think the ALT change is probably due to the fat accumulation in the liver, although I can't prove that to you. Uh, but, but I don't think any of these things are compound related. I think they're all, because we did have some other compounds as well, and they all pretty much share the same stuff. <coughs> yeah. you, you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, 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 I fully agree. I, uh, you know, I had this discussion with <coughs> colleagues at, at, at other pharmaceutical companies that, that felt that their compounds were cleaner, but I, you know, based on what we know, this is a class. It's a mechanism based, it's a price. I think so. One, one of the things that I personally would like to explore is how is, is what some of these compounds would do in uh, like uh, ketoacidosis and hyperosmolarcoma yeah. yeah. for acute use, not for chronic use. I think that they could be incredibly, for DKA, you ought to be able to reverse ketosis in a matter of minutes yeah. with, with this compound. And then, if you could reverse ketosis very quickly, then the uh, insulin, you know, uh, dosing paradigms would be would, would change and be much easier to monitor patients uh, because you're not worried about acidosis. So uh, the acidosis should improve fairly quickly. And for hyperosmolar coma, also it might be very effective in lowering glucose and allowing uh, for smoother smoother control. So so I think that's one thing that uh, I'm uh, very interested. in. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. Do these increasing costs of drug development have the effect that pharmaceutical companies can only develop drugs for the most common and very frequent diseases? Uh, does it mean they can only develop drugs for the most common diseases? Was that yeah. your question? No, actually, uh, <laughs> so actually pharmaceutical companies are looking more and more now to develop drugs for orphan diseases for uh, diseases where there's a, a large unmet medical need but small populations. And the reason for it is that, uh, number one, there's a large unmet medical need. And, and by the way, I've I worked in a pharmaceutical company for two companies, and I must say that um, the motives of people in pharmaceutical companies are actually quite good. I, I think one of the problems pharmaceutical companies have is they have to make a profit. I mean, they're, they're not not-for-profit organizations. So, so sometimes the for-profit motive, you know, goes up against uh, the, the other issues. But, but, but I must say that I've been very impressed with the ethics, and at least the people I knew, and, and, and the intentions of pharmaceutical companies. But what happens with orphan diseases and, and diseases where there are small populations, you can get a huge price for your drugs. So if, if you look at something like um, hemophilia, right, and factor eight, I think there's a couple of suppliers of factor eight. Well, it costs, I don't know, $30,000, $40,000 a year to get factor eight. But of course, it's life-saving for these people, but there are very few people. So the pharmaceutical companies recoup their investment in, in these indications. In fact, the hardest place to recoup your investment is if, if you take the other extreme, take something like tuberculosis or malaria, a huge unmet medical need, right? But you can't get anything for those drugs. 
because it's all underdeveloped countries where nobody can afford to pay for them. So, uh, at least for the most part. So what's happening there is drug companies are, are forming consortia with nonprofit organizations to develop drugs for those kinds of indications. So it's a complicated question, but, but the answer is there's a huge interest in small, small, um, so-called market diseases. Yes, there's a huge interest there. Yes. So in the last maybe five to six years, we've had some more concerns about cardiovascular outcomes based on abandonment and some of these other drugs. I'm just wondering if you could comment on either duration of time, money, or how many drugs have now been sort of yeah, sure. because of that. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Well, I mentioned very briefly about the FDA's um, uh, concern about safety. And, um, you know, I, I mean, we, we could spend a whole day debating on the FDA and, and whether their policies are right or wrong. But the bottom line is, is they've added it, this, this safety uh, concern, if you will, uh, has, uh, or, or I should say, the, the desire to know before a drug is marketed what its potential is uh, rather than finding out after its marketing, um, has added a huge cost. So, for example, for uh, to do the meta-analysis for uh, cardiovascular events, you need about 7,000 or so patients. To do a cardiovascular outcomes trial, you need about 15,000 patients. So what we were doing at Merck is, uh, for example, which, which also adds a huge cost to failure, is we were beefing up our phase two programs because you don't want to lose all those patients. So you add a few more patients and you continue them on because they add the cardiovascular meta-analysis. Then of course, the, so the, the, the whole Genuvia program had I think 3,000 patients in it at registration. Um, today we would have had to have the program twice that big. So the cost would have been roughly twice as great uh, to get Genuvia approved. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it is adding uh, a huge burden uh, on pharmaceutical companies. On the other hand, I must say that uh, there are some drugs that I'm kind of glad haven't taken to market. So you know, we can talk about that too. Okay, any other questions? Did I answer your question? Would you care just in a minute or two yeah. to mention or to why do you think it is that there is so much inertia within the industry to do exactly what you're proposing, or at least what one might infer from what you've said, which is to stop these things earlier yeah. rather than to let them roll on into the, because the cost goes up and show exponents in our experience as somewhat naive in this, sure. dealing with people like the, or people in the industry, the, the mistake seems to be the two that you described before, where you know there's either biological problems or going to be problems with with certifying these agents. You can tell it, you can smell it, you know what's going to happen, but it keeps going. It's like a yeah. train wreck. That's right. So okay. what, what's the yeah. is this the sociology of drug development? Or is it the, <laughs> well, it's it's two things. First of all. Uh, those of you that work in diabetes, especially in the basic area, know that there aren't a lot of targets. And so you look at what you need to do, where you need to be, and where you are, and we say, holy mackerel, you know, we've only got these three or four or five things. You know, one of them's got to work, right? 
So that tends to keep you moving maybe a little further. The other thing is, and, and actually Peter Kim gave, the best talk I've ever heard him give uh, was to a, uh, a meeting with Mark Kiesel, where he spoke about um, objectivity and, um, um, oh, what's the word I want? Um, you know, um, attachment. Yeah, kind of attachment. That's not the word he used. It'll come to me. I'm just blocking that. Uh, advocacy. He talked about advocacy versus objectivity. And, you know, for everything there's an advocate. This is true in academic medicine, too. I mean, you know, how long do people go down the same path before they say, stop, you know, this isn't going to work. Uh, so every program has its advocates. And you don't want to get rid of that. Because if you look at drugs that have been approved, many of them have been killed So for many times. So, for example, when I was in Bayer, I can't tell you how many times people tried to kill Cipro. You know? This thing kills your Achilles tendon, there's photo. The first patient they dosed with Cipro had a, had a, uh, a reaction to the sun, right? So most people would have said, my God, we've got to kill this cop. And the first patient we dose in phase one goes out with blisters, right? Well, there was an advocate, there were advocates who kept that drug going, and there are many, many examples like that. So the answer is the balance, right, between advocacy and objectivity. I fully admit that we should have killed the Moving On Project earlier. I think we were, the reason why we didn't is we were so blown away by the efficacy that we thought maybe we could thread the line and find the dose. Now, in reality, that was pretty foolish because the other thing we know, the experienced drug people will tell you, is that the longer you dose, the lower the dose that causes an effect is. So you see this in tox all the time. If you do a tox, a two-week tox study and a, and a gram a day is clean, um, or, or say a gram is clean and two grams shows increase in LFTs, well, you do a four-week tox study and a gram will show the LFTs. You do a 12-week tox study and 500 milligrams will show the LFTs. So generally speaking, the longer you go, the lower your doses that cause the effects. We knew that, but... Um, you know, we were too we were too much on the advocacy side. And I think that, that's a big problem. I think the, the, the lack of opportunities and the advocacy versus objectivity. We need to be more objective. You're absolutely right. But Cipro, that's it would have been killed. And Cipro is probably one of the best antibiotics ever. But would it be true to say that within the industry you get less benefit from being the person that killed something, even oh, if it was the oh. right thing to kill, yeah. as opposed to being the, you know, the uh, perennial advocate, because you're going to be right some yeah. I, I think that's changed. In fact, uh, if you look at how companies are trimming their portfolios, I mean, the big thing now is to save R&D costs. Now, in the past, I think there was some of that. You know, you, you get rewarded for approvals, you don't get rewarded for failures. And, and that has to do with, with the whole thing about you get what you incent, right? Uh, it, and um, so the other problem you have, of course, is that, is that the timeline between uh, a drug approval and research is so long that the people that do the research, you know, there's, it, it's too far away. You know, it's kind of like treating hypertension. You know, I don't feel sick. What do I going to take these drugs for, right? So... Um, yeah, so I think
think now, though, the, the, the objectives are aligned more towards the quick kill, towards doing things more like I was telling you. Getting to, in other words, you're incented for getting to a go-no-go -no -go decision quicker. And then once you get to that decision, what's the next go-no-go -no -go decision? So the whole process has been broken down into a series of time-related decisions. And, uh, and how do you get to that next decision? And what the other thing we did at Merck, um, which was actually incredibly extensive, was develop criteria for moving to the next point. So we killed the mechanism, actually, which, um, which other companies have subsequently shown might work. And Merck is now, I can't tell you what it was, but Merck is now back in it. But we killed it because we had very strict criteria about what the go-no-go -no -go was. Now that was, could, it could have been a bad kill, but we lived by our criteria. So, you know, it goes both ways. <clears throat> All right. Thank you.